This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow. Everyone's talking about AI. Everyone. But where do you start? How can it actually help your business? The ServiceNow platform brings intelligence into every corner of your company. So every person, every system, every process, everything works better. Put AI to work. Tap the banner or go to servicenow.com slash genai to see how. There are 1.3 billion people in India, and tech companies see that as a tantalizing opportunity. The number one thing that you need to know about India is the online market is massive. There's just an enormous scale. But the amazing thing is that only about half of the people so far are online. And major U.S. tech companies, which have saturated Western markets, are hungry to get those potential new customers on their services. Google, Facebook, Uber, and Amazon are spending billions of dollars expanding their Indian operations. You hear these companies talk about the importance of quote-unquote next billion users, and they're talking about this vast pool of people left in the world who don't use online services yet. Well, if you're interested in the next billion users, that equals one thing, India. While the Indian government has been open to becoming a country with a global tech market, in the past few years, India has started seeing some unintended consequences of a tech boom dominated by U.S. companies. Today on the show, the story of a massive developing country that is rewriting the rules for the biggest tech companies in the world and what it means for the future of India's internet. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, December 10th. Facebook and Google each entered the Indian market more than a decade ago. But it took other American tech giants a little longer to set up shop. India has, for a very long time, been known as a place that is very difficult for foreign companies to operate. Nuli Purnell covers tech in India, and we reached him at his office in New Delhi. India is notorious for having a vast and difficult-to-penetrate bureaucracy, for red tape, endless permits. Even when it comes to signing up new customers, if you want to open a bank account or start a business, there are you know reams of paperwork that need to be filled out. You have to wait forever to do things. And part of it, too, is, is not regulatory. It's the complicated nature of the country. You know, it's over a billion people with tons of different languages being spoken and different religious customs and different cultures and different geography. So it's, it's not one monolithic market. It's much more a, a hodgepodge of different rules and regulations for each state. Despite that hodgepodge, the opportunity of hundreds of millions of new customers is too valuable to miss. And over the years, more American companies have started to enter India. And what was the political reaction in India at that time when Amazon and Uber started going into India? Prime Minister Modi, you know, who was elected the following year in 2014 for his original term, is very much a pro-business politician. He talked just after he was elected about wanting India to be known for a red carpet for foreign firms, not its red tape. In 2013, both Amazon and Uber began investing heavily to build out their Indian operations. In fact, in 2014, Jeff Bezos himself came 
and was pictured dressed like a local Indian person. He had a white suit on and a, and a purple scarf around his neck, and he hung off the side of a colorfully painted delivery truck. And in fact, our reporting shows that he told employees at an internal meeting at that time, just do whatever you take to win in India. Don't worry about the money. We got to double down on India and we got to win at all costs. What happened when Amazon came in? Well, first of all, they started growing very quickly. They started building warehouses or fulfillment centers, as they call them, all over the country. They began offering all kinds of discounts on their website. They began offering special partnerships with certain cell phone makers that you could buy only on their website. They began flooding the market with Hindi and other language advertising, TV ads, radio ads. They really started rolling out that playbook that they have used in America to dominate and offer convenience and try to do it as efficiently as possible to sell everything under the sun. But there was a problem with rolling out the red carpet for foreign tech companies. It could hurt domestic startups. When Amazon entered India, there was a dominant local player that was already doing e-commerce. It was called Flipkart, which was founded by two former Amazon employees. And all of a sudden, Flipkart was faced with serious competition from Amazon. And so Flipkart saw that and said, okay, well, I guess we have to raise our game as well. They were already in a comfortable position as the leader, but suddenly they're up against one of the most powerful tech companies in the world. So they started slashing prices as well. Both were racing to cut deals with suppliers of goods that they could sell on their site. And it really triggered this massive discount war where they were competing with one another to offer cheaper goods. And it was hugely expensive, as you can imagine. And this triggered really a huge amount of cash burning because if you're Flipkart, you're suddenly not competing against just your fellow Indian startups. You're competing with Amazon, which has vast, vast reserves. But Flipkart didn't have the same reserves as Amazon. So in their battle over which company would dominate the Indian e-commerce market, Flipkart was at a disadvantage. And the competition was putting a strain on the company. Flipkart tries. They just kept continuing to try to match Amazon on price and expand their inventory and work to deliver items quickly and sign up users. But it's never easy when you're competing with Amazon, the pioneer of all this stuff. Ultimately, Walmart comes in and last year takes a look at Flipkart and decides, we're going to buy this company $16 billion dollars. Walmart's biggest ever acquisition. And Walmart's bet is we need a piece of what's going to be a massive e-commerce market. And our best bet is to take over the leading domestic e-commerce company. So they come in and snap up Flipkart. It was a big deal at the time. It was a huge deal because it was a big price tag for one, but also Flipkart was a big source of pride for India because it was going toe-to-toe with this American behemoth in Amazon. It was holding its own. They were sort of considered neck and neck. Maybe Amazon was a bit ahead, but they were started by Indian startup founders. And in some quarters, people thought it's a bit sad because our biggest and really most important startup is now gone. And now it's owned by a big U.S. titan. So what does this do to the Indian e-commerce market? There remain a handful of other smaller 
Indian startups, but no one can now compete with Walmart's Flipkart and Amazon. And they, between them, have, you know, dominate the e-commerce market with about 80% market share. Now, 80% of online shopping sales in India are going to American companies. And how is the Indian government feeling about this fact? Well, as Walmart would soon learn, they weren't too happy about it. The day after Christmas last year, the Indian government quietly posted an announcement on one of its websites that, sorry, we're changing the rules. Some of these laws for foreign companies were already on the books, and the Indian government said it was just tightening loopholes. But these changes impacted some of the strategies Amazon and Flipkart had used in their war for dominance. For example, this deep discounting the government turned a blind eye toward. They said, well, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. They said that striking deals with individual brands, say mobile phone brands, to make them available only on your website to juice your sales, you can't do that anymore. And the effect was that overnight, with very little warning, these companies had to rewire their supply chains and change what items they could offer for sale. And it came with no warning, essentially. And we know that Walmart was surprised and was under the impression that there was going to be no such rule changes. What did the Indian government say its reasoning was? The government says that they were done to protect India's domestic startups, so the remaining Indian e-commerce companies that were now competing with Walmart's Flipkart and Amazon, and that it also wanted to protect a very important lobby in India, which is wholesale companies and workers and owners of small mom-and-pop shops in India. But while these enforcement changes may have been aimed to help mom-and-pop shops in India, they presented new challenges for American e-commerce companies. Over the last year, they've had to change the way they operate in India, and American firms have also stepped up lobbying efforts to make their case to the Indian government. If there's one thing that big businesses don't like, it's regulatory uncertainty. They want to know what the rules are. So they're pushing behind the scenes more, working with policymakers to try to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Walmart said that they're still totally committed to e-commerce in India. Amazon says the same. But the effect has been a sort of chill with other potential deals because companies that are already here or considering coming here look at the situation and say, geez, we thought that we knew what the rules were in India. And now it seems like the more powerful, the more successful that we become, the more the government might move the goalposts and say, actually, now we're going to make it tougher. The Indian government is also making it tougher for another major American tech company, one with 400 million users in India. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. 
Terms and conditions apply. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Welcome back. U.S. companies like Amazon have become very influential in India. But the Indian government still thinks it's not too late to help nurture some of its own tech players. Now it's too late to defeat Google and Facebook and Uber is still here and Amazon's not going anywhere. But there are other avenues like digital payments where India does wield significant regulatory power still and can shape the way these services develop. Right now, an Indian company called Paytm is one of the most dominant in digital payments. But there's an American company that's desperate to break in, WhatsApp. And WhatsApp's ambitions might set up a new battleground, not only for digital payments, but for Indian tech policy writ large. So WhatsApp is obviously owned by Facebook and is massively popular in India. It has 400 million users in India, which is, you know, more than there are Americans. And it is the place, it's the default digital town square where families communicate, where businesses communicate with customers, where friends make plans to go out in the evening. It is the primary means to communicate digitally in India. Two years ago, almost, WhatsApp decided for the first time ever, it was going to offer a digital payments service. They rolled it out to a limited number of users, and it is, by all accounts, everyone who's used it, as I have, it is seamless, it's simple to use, and it could really be a revolution in India when it comes to digital payments. Now, Paytm is already there. It's been around for a while, but the thing is that they don't have the scale of WhatsApp. So if you have 400 million users and you say, here's a product for free, you can send money to your friend, you can pay your bills, you can do anything you want to do without using cash within the app that everybody already has, it has a huge potential to be successful. But WhatsApp hasn't rolled out digital payments to the rest of the country yet because they have a problem. The company is still waiting for government approval. Some analysts say the Indian government is trying to protect that local company, Paytm. But the Indian government says it's holding up approval for WhatsApp because it requires all digital payment companies to keep payment-related user information in India. Now, that's not a problem for Paytm, an India-based company. But it is a problem for WhatsApp, which is largely based in California. Two years later, WhatsApp is still waiting for permission. It says we're compliant. The Indian government says, we don't think you are. So WhatsApp has had, in its biggest single market, a hugely important service stalled. And analysts say, guess who benefits from that? Paytm and other Indian companies. Because they're Indian, they would already have the user data located here anyway. The idea of the Indian government wanting to keep all the user data generated by Indians stored in servers in India is something the government has been starting to talk about. And some say the rhetoric can sound like a new form of nationalism based on data protection. So, for example, in the case of WhatsApp, India would say, 
We want data sovereignty. We want this data that's created by Indians. We want ownership of it, or we want control of it. And the term sovereignty is, you know, indicative of like a tech nationalism or a sense that, you know, the data should belong to us. It should be something we control. We take for granted in the U.S. that Google, that Facebook, that Amazon, that Apple, that all these companies that have access to our data are American, that they have American values, and that they have their data, mostly in the U.S. So India is now saying, why should you be allowed to operate here by your own rules? You have access to all our consumers, you're making money in this country, and the data belongs to Indians. It should be up to us to determine how you deal with it. As India puts together a playbook to protect its tech industry, it's looking to another country as an example. That country also has a population of over a billion people and has had immense interest from foreign tech companies. That country is China. And unlike India, which has been more open to foreign tech companies, China chose protectionist policies from the beginning. Now, China was partially motivated by the ability to censor and control new platforms. But these policies were also a boon to Chinese businesses. The country's startups could grow without foreign competition, and some are now global corporations. And this approach interests policymakers in India. They haven't made really many public comments about this, but we know that behind closed doors that Indian policymakers have said, look, we are a democracy. We're not talking about censoring the internet, but we know that China has done a terrific job of nurturing its own domestic champions. And so they're not suggesting walling off the internet the way that China has done, but they see that Tencent, that Alibaba, that ByteDance, which owns TikTok, are now huge, huge, important companies. So the results of China's protectionism, setting the censorship aside, was to really help bolster and grow a domestic tech industry. Right. When you wall yourself off from the rest of the world and you tell the leading companies in the internet and IT sector, you can't come and do business here, and you give easy financing to some of these companies and you let them dominate the market, the result is that you grow huge companies. If you nurture the development and protect the development of your domestic tech companies, they can become global players. So it seems like this trajectory that India is on, in some ways, is the story of like a developing country trying to figure out how tech will look in their society, whether it's owned by domestic incumbents or by the dominant global players. Exactly. India is now, in its journey as it becomes a digital country, is caught up in all of this. It sees some of the problems and abuses that U.S. tech firms have undertaken. So, yeah, it's been in a very condensed time frame. The kind of infatuation and early optimism promise turned to now, hold on a second, we want to make sure we have control of our data. We want to give our internet companies a chance to thrive, and we don't want to be overrun by these American companies.
That's all for today, Tuesday, December 10th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen. We come out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.